The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage. How's everybody doing? Having a good summer? <laughs> it's been a good summer. Hey, man, like the Lord has kept smoke out of the Rogue Valley till August 14th, so I'm thankful for that. Hey, my name is Paul, and I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. Really glad that you're joining us this morning. If you happened to be here last Sunday, Pastor Jeremy uh, kickstarted a, a five-week sermon series we have begun uh, on the book of Psalms. We're calling the sermon series Authentic Worship. Now, if you've been a part of Heritage for any length of time, you're probably familiar with our core values, and one of our core values is, in fact, authentic worship. If you were to go to our website and you were to click on what we believe, you would go to this, web, this, this page that would kind of walk through each of our five core values, and, and on there would be authentic worship, and here's what it would read on our website in our documents. It says, the purpose of all we do is to worship God for His glory. We desire to create a culture where people are empowered by the Spirit of God, and an understanding of the gospel to worship God and to see worship as something that is done in every area of life. Christians are to live as ambassadors of a different kingdom, manifesting God's character and nature as we do. So one of the core values that we have as a church is is authentic worship. If you were to look at the uh, discipleship survey, and one of the ways, one of the the definitive markers of a a believer or of a disciple, we we say authentic worship marked by relationships is is one of the key ways we identify who we are as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if you were to take the survey that we offer our people, you would read questions like this. Questions that might cause you to reflect on on, on the, the station and place of worship in your life. Do I practice different spiritual disciplines as a mean of connecting to God from the heart rather than from religious duty? You'd interact with a question like this. Is my involvement in the local church motivated by a desire to love God and to love his people uh, the way that he does? A third question we ask you to consider is, do I listen to teaching on a Sunday morning or otherwise? Do I listen to teaching so that I can grow as a friend and disciple of Jesus or simply to grow in knowledge? And the last questions we ask you to to interact with as you think about authentic worship in your life is, is my Christian service a loving act of worship or an obligation to alleviate guilt? We think a, a primary marker of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is to engage in authentic worship. And so what we decided to do for five weeks is open the songbook of the Bible. Uh, and to look and see what the psalmists have to say about worship. And in fact, we very deliberately chose five different genres of psalm. So there are five, generically speaking, there are five, five genres of psalms. And last week, Pastor Jeremy introduced Psalm 1, which is a wisdom psalm. Today we're going to be in Psalm 32, which is a psalm of thanksgiving. And then in the coming three weeks, we'll be in a psalm of lament, we'll be in a psalm of royalty, and we'll be in a psalm of praise. So today, if you brought a Bible, let me encourage you to open up to Psalm 32. This is a thanksgiving psalm. Some have also called this psalm a penitential psalm. There's seven penitential psalms, which simply means a psalm of confession or an an apologetic, contrite, repentant psalm. And that's the, the tenor of today's psalm as it also is encased in this idea of thanksgiving. Let's read the 11 verses of Psalm 32. You can follow along in your Bibles. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. 
For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sins to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. The title of my sermon today is Blessed and Forgiven. I get that from the first two verses. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no conceit. This psalm begins with this hopeful statement of blessed forgiveness. Notice how the psalm ends. Look at the second half of verse 10 and verse 11. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. This psalm gives us means for great joy, for rejoicing. It is a psalm of blessing. It speaks of forgiveness. That is the tenor. And then between the sandwiching of this language of joy and blessing, we see the teaching of the psalm that calls us to this posture of confession and repentance. And we're going to look at that here in a minute. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm so very thankful for the opportunity you give us week in and week out to gather in this place to open up your word and to hear from you through your word. God, I pray that today I, I could get out of the way of you saying and, and conveying the things you want to through your word preached. I pray, God, that by your spirit today, God, that you would open up eyes and bring conviction to hearts and elicit and draw out worship from your people. God, may you be magnified today, exalted today, worshiped today in this place. Our hearts are so filled with thanksgiving when we meditate on the grace and the forgiveness you offer us. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I did something 33 years ago that I have yet to confess to. I committed a great offense in the fall of 1989, I was 14 years old, and I've been holding on to this for 33 years. I thought, why not just confess in front of my whole congregation today? Let's get that out of the way. So 19, or 33 years ago, when I was 14 years old, in 1989, I, I went to this little high school in western Montana called Victor High School. We played eight-man football. Anybody here play eight-man football in a small high school? Oh, it was awesome. It was awesome. And uh, I was a very young, very prepubescent young man, and uh, insecure, 
uh, terrified, surrounded by all these upperclassmen who were men. They had hair under their arms and deep voices. I had none of that. I was very insecure. And one day, uh, at the beginning of our fall football practice, my freshman year of high school, I was carrying my gear outside to get dressed up. I had my shoulder pads, my helmet, and my cleats in my hand. And I was walking out of the locker room, and the light of the locker room was on, and I didn't have a free hand to turn the light off. And so I tried to turn it off with my cleats. The bottom of my cleats were a black rubber material. And so my first swipe missed, my second swipe missed. About seven or, or eight swipes in, I finally caught the light switch and I went out the, the locker room. I, I kind of noticed that I left a bunch of black streaks on the wall from my cleats. And I sort of like, ugh, I'm an idiot. Went outside, got dressed, went through practice. At some point over the next day or two, coach noticed what was going on on the locker room wall. And he sat the whole team down. Here I am, five foot eight, 105, insecure, no hair on my legs, under my arms. My voice hasn't changed. I'm terrified by all these grown men. And the coach says, who is the idiot who tried to turn off the lights in the locker room with his cleats? And I'm like, I, and he's like, I tell you what, if that idiot comes forward now and confesses to being so stupid, we'll make him run and nobody else. But if that idiot doesn't come forward, the whole team's going to run. Well, the whole team ran. I did not (laughs) come forward. I didn't come forward in 1989, but I'm coming forward in 2022. I'm going to share this with some of my friends on Facebook. Guys, it was me. I confess. I'm sorry. I can tell you that that unconfessed sin weighed heavy on the heart, mostly because I didn't want to get found out by the upperclassmen because they would haze me mercilessly. But sincerely, I'm still thinking about it. It's 33 years later. That's still on my mind and on my heart. So it's sort of a fun play at this idea of unconfessed sin. But perhaps, and I'm guessing, there's that each one of us in this room knows what it is to live with the tension of unconfessed sin in our lives. It might be something simple, sort of innocent like my story. Maybe when you were a kid, your parents were on a date, you broke a figurine or a vase and you took some super glue out, you glued it back together and hoped they'd never notice and they didn't and you're still living with the secret today. Perhaps you told a lie or a series of lies that you've never copped up to. But my guess is, if we were to sit down and have coffee and get to know each other, my guess is there's some of us in here that have some, some more grievous things and sins in our life that linger in our conscience. Some, some failures in our past that maybe we haven't dealt with properly at this point. I think of Adam, our first father, how he responded upon his failure, his sin. He ran from the Lord and he hid and he covered himself. I think we have a tendency to do the same thing when we fail. I think we have a tendency to want to hide and cover in shame. And maybe you've been someone who's been caught in a, in a pattern of sin. And it seems that in life we get caught in these patterns of sin at times. And we feel shame because of the sin. And we want to do something about the shame that we feel. So we resort to the behavior that induced the shame in the first point, And we begin this shame cycle. We get caught in this habitual pattern of sin. And we don't know how to confess it. We don't know how to deal with it. It creates angst in our spirit. And we end up living with this angst. I'm convinced that... And I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, so I don't want to overreach here, but I'm convinced that a lot of the physical ailments we we deal with, the emotional and relational struggles we encounter, I think oftentimes that can be rooted back to a sin issue in our life that we haven't properly dealt with. God, in his grace, won't let us sweep it under the rug. Oftentimes, if you're like me, and I go back and I think through the course of my life, we have a time in our life where we're suddenly forced to deal with the sin issue. We're suddenly made aware of the seriousness of our sin. And God, in His grace, He hunts us down. He exposes the sin that keeps us from Him. 
Whether it's a brother and sister in Christ who lovingly confronts you in your sin, or it's just a moment of clarity as you're sitting under a preached word, you're reading the scriptures, or God by his spirit just, just puts conviction in your heart. And sometimes, often, the most painful ways we're forced to deal with our sin is when we're caught in our sin, and we're forced to deal with it. And we're made painfully aware. And when that happens, a decision has to be made. When we're made painfully aware of our sin, we have to decide, will I continue in it? Or will I confess and repent from it? That's the very thing our passage deals with today. This psalm shows both the bitterness that unconfessed sin creates, but it focuses, and its primary message is on the sweetness of confession and the sweetness of the grace and the forgiveness and the joy that results. Look with me, get back at verses two and, or 1 and 2. This is the, the, the introduction. King David is the author of this psalm. He, he's talking about the blessing of forgiveness. And we get to look at this really beautiful language in verse 1 and 2. The last time a psalm began with the word blessed, it was when Psalm 1, Jeremy preached that last week. Now we're in Psalm 32. But then as soon as we get to verse 3, the tone of the psalm changes, and we see the opposite of blessing. If you want to take notes, here's the first note I would write under the heading. And the first thing we hear about is the weight of unconfessed sin. We see the weight of unconfessed sin. Look at the language of verses 3 and 4 again. David writes, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now here David is drawing from his own personal experience. The psalm takes on a testimonial tone. David is sharing his experience with unconfessed sin. And he's doing so as we see the psalm unfold. He's sharing his harsh reality, his harsh relationship with unconfessed sin so that you and I as the readers might be encouraged to pursue godliness. And then we see that word selah. That, that word appears three times in our psalm, 71 times in the book of Psalms. Some think that the word selah means to measure or to weigh. Some think that this word means to to praise or to lift up. Some think that it means to pause or consider. Some translations insert the word interlude here. And though there's no universal agreement on exactly what the word selah means, listen to what I read this week. The author writes, Perhaps the best way to think of selah is a combination of all these meanings. The Amplified Bible adds, Pause and calmly think about that to each verse where Selah appears. When we see the word Selah in the psalm, we should pause and carefully weigh the meaning of what we have just read or heard, lifting up our hearts in praise to God for his great truths. So as we engage in these two verses, let's encourage ourselves to pause, to think calmly about what we've just read. Let me read these words to you again. Pause, consider these words. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, God, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. The psalmist here says there are two things that accompanied his lack of confession or his non-confession. One was silence, and the second thing is strengthlessness. He says in verse 3 that he kept silent. Why was the psalmist silent before God? Well, we can do some speculation if we look at David. And many people have linked Psalm 32 to Psalm 51, which takes us back to the great sin of David in in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, where he 
impregnated Uriah's wife Bathsheba in an adulterous relationship and in an attempt to cover up this he had Uriah killed and ultimately the prophet Nathan confronted David and he had to deal with the gross, ugly, murderous, adulterous, self-centered sin and in the Psalm 51 we see this very honest and raw confession of David. Many believe Psalm 31 and, or Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 go together and so we can begin to speculate as to why David may have been silent before the Lord. Part of us would speculate when we look at David in the, in the time between the murder of Uriah and before he was confronted by Nathan, there was a prideful silence. He was, he was willfully disobeying the will of God. It was a willful disobedience. He knew he was living in a way that was counter to God. And so he remained silent. He was a deceitful man. So that's certainly one motivation. I think as we read in context here, it was miserable for David. I think perhaps if it was a prideful silence for a season, it became a despairing silence. This seems to be the case as I read the passage. When I kept silent, he says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Groaning. Groanings of guilt. Groanings of shame. And it leads us to ask that question. Why might, why might someone be silent before God? Why might those of us in the church find ourselves in seasons of silence before God? I suppose some is prideful, convinced of our own wisdom, we remain silent before God. But what else might someone be silent before God? Some, I think, are stuck in that shame cycle. That's been my experience as a pastor, and in my own life personally, is when I sit down with people, they get caught in a cycle of habitual sin, and, and in comes this monster of shame, and when shame enters, there's a desire to flee from God and cover up, because to come to Him was sort of be like uh, admitting the, the, the reality of this, of this shameful thing in my life, and we don't want light shed on that, we don't want to lay that bare before God, we're ashamed, and so we hide and we run, as if He can't see it in the first place, and so we become silent before God. And the longer we're silent, the more despairing we become. And the shame cycle continues. I have a, a friend that's an addict and he's in recovery. He shared with me the shame cycle that he experienced in his life as a Christian. He said that in his life, he realized that there was shame and that led to a belief. In his life, it led to a bad belief about himself. And that belief led to an action. And in his life, that led to a self-centered action that was self-destructive. And that self-centered, destructive action led to a result. It created more shame. So when he had more shame, what did he do? He went back to the top of the cycle and engaged in the shameful behavior as a way to self-medicate for the shame he felt. And it was a never-ending spiral in his life. And it wasn't until he heard the voice of God saying, Come to me. I know what's going on in your life. You can't hide it from me. Bring it to me, all of it. Shine light on all of it. There is deliverance to be had here. And we'll see here in a moment that as soon as you open your mouth, as soon as you confess your sins, the psalmist tells us that forgiveness is extended. The shame cycle ends. And then we see after silence, we see strengthlessness in the psalmist. He says, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I think prolonged silence before God by default requires that we operate on our own strength and very quickly if we're operating on our own strength we are zapped of our own strength we are stripped we are made aware of our weakness and our lack of self-sufficiency which is the definition of strengthlessness and the psalmist says this this really 
hard but powerful phrase at the beginning here of verse 4. He says, for day and night your hand was upon me. Man, depending on how you read that, that can be ominous. Ooh, the hand of God heavy upon his sinful saint. Or it can be gracious. In his shamefulness, God didn't flee. In his shamefulness, God was present. And in his love, kept his heavy hand upon his man so as to direct him back to confession and repentance. I think about being a dad and being an outdoorsman. I take my kids and my grandson now off into the outdoors. And, and when we get in spots where there's perilous dangers that loom, cliffs or raging waters or what may, my heavy hand goes upon my kids. I know the danger that exists four feet. And kids don't necessarily understand that danger. So the heavy hand of their father goes on their back is a way to direct them away from danger. And sometimes they fight against it and sometimes they don't. The heavy hand of God upon his saint, upon the psalmist here, upon David, is an act of love. It's gracious. It's actually something that should elicit worship from us. He did not abandon David in his shame. He was a murdering adulterer. And he did not abandon David. He kept his hand upon him, in fact, drawing him to a place of confession and repentance. God's heavy hand is a grace. I think of the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You know, if you've been around the church, it's a very well-known story. Self-centered, self-important son demands his father's inheritance. He runs off. He lives lavishly, sinfully with his back to his father, wastes everything. One day it says in Luke 15 verse 17, when he came to himself, there came a moment in his life where his sin was made to sit on his lap. The heavy hand of the father put his sin in front of him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. He says, I will arise and I will go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as your hired servants. But we know the story. The moment the son turns his face heavenward, father towards his father, we see, that, we see in, the, in, the, in the parable that the father runs out to meet the son and he doesn't, doesn't shame him, doesn't heap more shame on him, doesn't say, I told you so. The father welcomes the son back with celebration and love. The heavy hand of the father's expectation was upon his son and there came a moment where he came to himself. As we look at David in our psalm here, the, the testimony of David he's sharing here is, is if you and I, or if the reader wants to continue an unconfessed sin, if we, want, if we want to continue in rebellion, then, then that person stays silent before God. And you know, silence in any relationship is the death of relationship. There's a stripping of strength, and the hand of God's discipline will weigh heavy. Now, I, I don't know the intimate details of your life. Some of you, I've had an opportunity to get to know you as a pastor. We've shared some stories and some life experiences. I don't know where you've been, where you are, where you're going necessarily, but the Lord does. And, and there might be some of us here today who have felt the heavy hand of God upon us because of the way we have chosen to live. We feel like our bones are wasting away. We feel like we've been groaning all day long. Our strength is dried up as in the summer heat. It is God's grace that his hand is heavy upon you. This is the picture of what it looks like to continue in unconfessed sin. You cannot outrun the heavy hand of the Lord. Praise God. Selah. Pause and calmly think about that. So on this path to being blessed and forgiven, the first stop 
is coming to terms with the weight of unconfessed sin. Because when we come to terms with the weight of unconfessed sin, we can then deal with it rightly. That takes us to to point number two, verses five through seven. We see the deliverance of confession. The psalmist writes of the deliverance of confession. The testimony of David continues in verse five. He talks about how he confessed to the Lord. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, God. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and I will, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Pause and think calmly about that. I acknowledged my sin to you, God. I did not cover my iniquity, Lord. I said to you, Lord, I will confess my transgressions. And what did you do? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Consider that truth. Notice the three words that David uses to speak of the offense against God. He uses sin, iniquity, and transgression. I acknowledge my sin. I did not cover up my iniquity. I confess my transgressions. It's interesting that these are the same three words that he uses in the introduction in verses 1 or 2. He says in verses 1 and 2 that transgression through confession is is forgiven, sin is covered, and the Lord no longer counts iniquity. And so what was the Lord's response to David's confession? It was forgiveness, instantaneous forgiveness. You You forgave all of my iniquity. John, in 1 John 1, verse 9, he says, if if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so in David's story, knowing all that he had done, in David's reality, when he confessed his sins, his transgressions were forgiven, his sin was covered, and God no longer counted his iniquity against him. Those three words for rebellion against God, Charles Spurgeon called them a three-headed dog. He said, David comes to see the silencing of this three-headed dog at the gates of hell. Listen to how another translation puts verses 1 and 2 in verse 5. Just listen to the language here. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record in the Lord has been cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. And then verse 5, Finally, I confessed all my sins to you, Lord, I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me all my guilt is gone. If we look at the honest nature of the confession of David contained in verse 51, it's incredible that it's even in the Bible. This this person who was a man after God's own heart, who was this iconic figure in Israel, who was this iconic larger-than-life figure in biblical history, that we get to read of his grievous failures, and we can read in Psalm 51 of his honest and contrite confession unto the Lord. In Psalm 51, as you get to the end, as as David is sort of wrapping up his, his prayer of confession... He says to to the Lord, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you would not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I think about the invitation we have to come before the Lord and just be honest about our sin. Not hide it anymore, not sanitize it anymore, not confess half-truths anymore, but just recognize that God sees it all anyways. And just the honesty that we see in Psalm 51, the invitation we have to come to the Lord and just lay it before Him. And then in light of the blessing of forgiveness, David now offers some instruction in verses 6 and 7. He says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, Because there may be a time that you're not found. 
That's what he means in the second part of verse 6. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. There may be a day when confession is no longer possible. There may be a day when there's a rush of mighty waters in your life and your opportunity to confess will have passed. So let everyone who is godly offer a prayer in a time when you, God, may be found. So today is the day. In verse 7, here's how David now speaks of the judge. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. Pause and think calmly about that. Let everybody who is godly offer a prayer to God at a time when he may be found. Today is the day. When we come to him, he becomes a hiding place for us. He preserves us from trouble. And he surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. That's what David is saying. He's saying this God who forgives, who forgives transgression, who covers up sin, who no longer counts iniquity against those who sin, he is saying this God now becomes for those who confess a hiding place. He is a protector in times of trouble. He surrounds in love and delivers those who confess. And I know in the past, I think about my, my job as a preacher, when I have to preach sermons that are about a text that deals with confession and sin, I know it can be heavy, and I feel like sometimes I don't want to just heep shame. I don't want to be a part of the shame problem. I want to, I want to highlight the forgiveness of God and that, that he invites us to come to him, and he nails our shame to the cross. But I know that sometimes the nature of those teachings can feel heavy, and I can feel up here like, like I'm just like pointing a condemning finger like I'm without sin. I'm not without sin. These words are just for me as much as they are for you. But when I look at the, the language of this psalm in its wholeness, it is a psalm of hope. It is just so hopeful. There, the focus of this psalm is on the graciousness of a forgiving God who doesn't count our sins against us when we bring them to him in faith. It's about the blessings that come from his forgiveness. It's about the joy that God causes to well up within the forgiven. Jeremy asked me this question earlier this week. He said, who is confession for? It's not for God. He already knows what we've done. It's for us. It's the means of our deliverance. It's the means of our liberation. It's the means that our, our, our shame gets dealt with forever. It's the means of our transformation. It's, 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 it's our hope. He's not this omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God with his angry arms folded from a distance, ready to blast us. No, he stretched out his arms and he died in our place. And he invites us to come to him that we might experience the sweetness of forgiveness. And look at the, the language that is contained within this psalm. The picture here is of a God who, who is, a, is ever present in the lives of those who come to him. He is a forgiving God. He's a rescuer. He's a hiding place. He's a protector. He surrounds and delivers those who come to him. He instructs and he teaches and he counsels. He keeps his eye on those he loves. He surrounds those who trust him with steadfast love. And we can be glad in him. And we can rejoice in him. And we can shout for joy because of him. Forgiveness and blessing is ours to be had. And it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ that forgiveness is put ultimately on display, isn't it? I heard this week that there was one who was willing to die in your place so that a soul so unworthy could find forgiveness and live. Alistair Begg said that. He said there was one who was willing to die in your place so that a soul so unworthy could find forgiveness and live. I'm mindful of the language of Hebrews. As the author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus, he says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross is about your forgiveness. 
I heard this week that Jesus covers our sin. He cancels our sin. He cleanses our sin. Forgiveness is an act of God's free grace. When we come to Christ in faith, he doesn't deal with our sin in part, but in, in whole. And I know sometimes if, if you're the kind of person that just has a hard time receiving forgiveness, you can have this little tape recorder in your mind and, and the, the, the images of your failures are ever before you and you've confessed them a hundred times and, and, and God says from heaven a thousand times, it's been dealt with, it's been nailed to the cross, I've extended forgiveness, you don't have to come back again and again, it's, it's dealt with, it's over, that, nail, that shame has been nailed to the cross, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, it's finished, and we have this tendency to want to replay that tape over and over again and keep ourselves in a place of bondage, but it's been dealt with. I'm reminded of the lyrics of It Is Well With My Soul, I, I love the lyrics of this song, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. I think of David's words in the beginning of Psalm 51, this psalm of confession. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And so for those of us today, on this side of the cross, reading this psalm through the gospel, through the cross, forgiveness is extended to us through the blood of Jesus. Again, The author of Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Well, there has been shedding of blood. When Jesus chose to die in your place and in my place, he covers, cancels, and cleanses us from sin. And he removes the penalty from sin, from us. When Jesus was instituting the Last Supper in Matthew 26, he says to his disciples after he took the cup and he'd given thanks, he said to them, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Other translations use the word there for the remission of sins. The Greek word there means the release from bondage or imprisonment. What Jesus has done has released you in total from the bondage and the imprisonment of your sin. It no longer defines you. And then he remembers our sin no more. In quoting Jeremiah 31, the author of Hebrews says, "For This is the voice of God. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In, in, in speaking of Jesus as the high priest of a better covenant, this is what the author of Hebrews says about the heart of God. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And so you and I, as we read this text, we, we, we can read it either through the lens of God as judge or the Lord as Savior. He can either be judge or savior. If you're the one who confesses and comes to him in faith, then he bec- the judge then becomes a hiding place for me. And he preserves us from trouble. And he surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. He is our hiding place, our protector, and our deliverer. We are blessed and forgiven. And we come to that reality when we deal with, honestly, the weight of unconfessed sin. And then when we confess, there is a deliverance that is to be had. And then we see in verses 8 and 9, the way of repentance. Suddenly David, he, he departs from offering instruction himself and he quotes the Lord himself. And he, rec- he records the words of the Lord in verse 8 and 9. What does, what does the Lord say? He says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. 
And so what's the Lord saying here? What is, what is the Lord saying in light of David's experience of, of feeling the crushing weight of sin that was unconfessed, of confessing sin and being made right with God, the Lord is then instructing us in light of this. And he's saying, follow my instruction. Listen to my teaching. Uh, pay attention to my counsel. Follow in my way. If you don't, you're like this stubborn mule or horse that has to have a bridle and a bit and whose mouth bleeds as he is forced or she is forced one way or the other against their will to go in a way they don't want to go. Those who walk in the way of the Lord, the psalmist says, his God's eye is upon us. The New Living Translation has that phrase by saying, the Lord saying, I will watch over you. The King James, the Lord says, I will guide thee with mine eye. The New Living Translation, or the New NIV says, has the Lord saying, I will counsel you with my loving eye upon you. And I think about what it means to confess. One time we confess Christ as Lord. We we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and we are saved. That's a a coming to faith in Christ. That's a coming to Christ in faith. It's a a, a confession of acknowledging my sin, recognizing the lordship of Christ and making him the Lord of my life. That's a one-time thing. Confessing our sins, however, if you've been a a follower of Jesus for any length of time, you, you recognize that we're in this place where we're already saved but we're not yet in glory and we've got the reality of sin that we have to struggle with and so if you've been walking with the lord for any length of time you you know that confession of sin is a regular part of the christian life confession and repentance now repentance is a simple understanding repentance simply means doing a 180 it's recognizing i'm walking in my own way and i'm going to confess and i'm going to repent from my own way and i'm going to turn to the lord and i'm going to walk in his way I'm going to listen to his teaching and his counsel and his instruction. I'm going to follow his way. It's turning from our way and following God's way. And in the end, the choice is ours. The way of self or the way of the Lord. The way of death or the way of life. The way of the wicked or the way of the righteous. And then David offers this simple summary of the whole passage. He says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love of the Lord surrounds those who trust him. And so the reality is that one day, every human being will meet him as judge or as savior. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. I knew a man who was a very vile man. He was an old man. And he was about as vile as human beings come. He was a predator. And he had preyed upon untold numbers of victims over the course of his life and never was held uh, legally responsible for what he had done. He was able to bypass the legal system, never went to prison, never had to address his evil wrongdoings. But I knew this man, I knew him well. And near the end of his life, I had the opportunity to sit with him and talk with him as he was coming to terms with his mortality. And I honestly, in my flesh, I was concerned nonetheless of his mortality, live or die, whatever. And I, I just knew him as a, as a vile human being who had done vile and horrendous things. But at the end of his life, he began to come to terms with this reality that he was going to stand before God. And he was going to stand before God. He was either going to be God, his judge, or God, his savior. And that's why he reached out to me. Because he knew me. And so we sat down and we talked about the gospel. And as I started asking questions, he asked to be baptized. And I said, why do you want to be baptized? And he said, I want to be baptized because I know that I'm going to stand before God one day. And I don't want to stand before him as the object of his judgment. I want to stand before him as one who's been saved by him. And so we walked through the gospel. And there was a genuine, repentant heart in the man. 
a genuine um, remorse for the vile, horrific things he had done in his life. And I became convinced after maybe an hour-long conversation that his faith was real, his desire to be saved was real, his trust and belief in Jesus was real. And so together, me and this vile man who I hated, we prayed, and he asked Jesus into his life. And it was incredible. We got done praying, and I said, how are you feeling? Like, what's going through your head? He's like, well, two things. He said, one, I feel like electric, just went, electricity went through my whole body. And then he said, I feel like the weight of the world has been lifted off my shoulders. And it's like, well, in no way it has. And it was placed on the shoulders of Jesus. So you and I, when we think about our sin and we think about the forgiveness we have in Christ, we can come to him as our savior. We don't have to hide our faith. We don't have to run away. We don't have to cover up our sin. We bring it to him. We confess it. And in his grace and in his love, he delivers us. He leads us on the way of repentance. And how do we end all this? Look at, the verses, look at verse 11. How are we to respond to a God who hears our confession and who forgives us? Look at the final verse. He says, be glad in the Lord. In light of all of this, in light of the fact he puts his heavy hand upon you, he makes you uncomfortable in your sin, in light of the fact he invites you to confess your sins to him, in light of the fact that he will then uh, put you on his path, that you can walk in a way that pleases him, in light of all of that, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, you upright in heart. This is the final point of the sermon. You and I are invited to the life of joy. We're invited to the life of joy. And we're reminded that confession is worship. Confession, it, it, it fosters intimacy with God and others. It removes fake masks and, and self-righteous pretending. Confession creates an authentic spirituality. It elevates God and not man. It invites grace both between you and God and between you and others, those who have felt the loving, heavy hand of the Lord and who have turned to him in confession, those who have experienced his gracious forgiveness, who have been surrounded by his love, David tells us they're glad in the Lord. They rejoice. They're made righteous by him. They shout for joy. In fact, if you look at the last few words of the psalm, they shout for joy. He says, shout for joy, all of you, upright in heart. It's not an individual thing either. It's a corporate thing. When we gather in a place like this on a Sunday morning to look at God, to, 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 to magnify him, to, to exalt him, to worship him, we are to shout for joy, all of us who are upright in heart. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ at work in our lives. The invitation to confess is before each and every one of us today. And the promise of grace and forgiveness, it means, here's what this means for us very practically, you do not need to walk around burdened. You can bring it to him. You can be liberated because of what Jesus has done. You can bring this to him. And your sins will be cast as far as the east is from the west. And you don't need to confess for sins again and again and again. You confess your sins once they're dealt with. It's nailed to the cross. It's forgotten. And you can have joy. The kind of joy the world doesn't know. So with thankful hearts, we are to worship him in joy. Let's pray. Father, so thankful for the opportunity to gather in this place this Sunday morning to focus on this psalm, the psalm of thanksgiving. God, you didn't have to make yourself so available to us. You could have demanded perfection, and when we failed, you could have just exterminated us if you wanted to you did it. You've made a way through your son, Jesus. 
that we might be forgiven and that we might be recipients of divine grace and that you might take us from death to life and that we can know what it means to to drink deeply of this blessed forgiveness that results in joy and rejoicing. And ultimately, God, we want the, the expression of our hearts, our forgiven hearts to be extended to you. God, we want you to be made much of in this place today. So God, I'm mindful this morning for those of us in here who, who have known you and, and it's just a regular part of our spiritual discipline just to confess our sins to you so there's nothing between us. You know they're there anyways to confess and repent. And God, I just pray that right now in this moment that we would do that. God, I pray that by your spirit, if there is unconfessed sin in the lives of your saints today, God, would you bring conviction right now? God, would you bring conviction not to induce shame? No, 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 not at all. The opposite. To bring about hopeful confession so that there may be joy in the hearts of your people today. Worship from the lips of your people. And of course, Lord, I'm mindful that there may be a person here today who has never in their lives confessed to you Jesus as Lord. They never knew that free grace was offered through Christ and the cross upon which he paid the penalty for their sins. And so I pray that right now in this moment, whoever that person is, right now in this moment, God, they would recognize that the shame that is associated with their sin has been dealt with. They don't need to walk around laboring under the weight of it, that Jesus, you came to deal with that sin once and for all. So God, I pray that right now that person would turn their face to you and they would confess, Jesus, I'm giving you my sin. I know you died to pay the penalty of my sin. And I know that forgiveness and grace is offered in and through you. So Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. God, I believe you've raised Jesus from the dead and he is alive today and I'm trusting you with my whole self. You've nailed my sin and my shame to the cross. I am born again. God, I pray today as we lift our voices in these next few minutes that we wouldn't lift our voices as just sort of an obligatory thing. But God, I pray that our worship would be informed by this amazing truth that we are forgiven by your grace. Hear the, the collective shouts of joy from your people in this moment. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.